0: Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnett. Phil and Ted's guest today is pop music's most endearing and enduring star, five-time Grammy winner, Weird Al Yankovic. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts and masters of self-parody, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnett.
1: Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet.
2: Yeah, and I'm Phil Proctor, and we're very, very, very pleased today to be talking to Weird Al Yankovic.
3: Hey, guys. How's it going? Welcome. Thanks so much. Glad to be here uh, in your backyard, so to speak.
2: Yes, yes. you're up in our, our upper patio, my upper patio here in Benedict Canyon. We got out of the bunker today just to you know let some air circulate in there. Okay, And uh, and we figure we're in the open air. So we have taken off our masks. Okay, (laughs) And, And there will be hugging Al, but at a safe social distance.
3: Absolutely. Yes. We've
1: been inside for months now. And Phil and I are just trying to break out when we can and see each other. So we're at a very socially safe distance. But we always have been, haven't we, Phil?
2: Well, we've been kind of at a cold uh, personal distance yeah. from one another. Yeah. I don't know if that counts. We've always you know? been
1: distant, but now we're actually <laughs> medically distant.
3: I'll remain emotionally distant just to help things out here. Oh, thank, you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so, so much. much.
1: You are a, a fixture in so many people's consciousness over the decades. Everybody knows about Al. Yeah. But do we really know Al? <laughs>
2: I can answer that Al if you remember the first time that we met face to face was at our dry cleaners wow do you remember that I, I'm going to take your word
3: for that. I, I don't actually. <laughs> when would that have been? Like 83, 84? Something
2: like that. I can remember what you were wearing. What? And what you took from the dry cleaners, uh, some shirts that they had actually ruined. And uh, we had a, a talk about legal representation and things like that. But I i had to go do some shopping at Gelson's. So I kind of left you uh, in a lurch, which you drove home in, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's well that's impressive <laughs> well you know we we like to inspire one another uh, we obviously all love to play with words you know whatever they are and and, and how slippery they are and how evanescent they are and how they can have so many different levels of meanings, at least from the fireside theater perspective. But that's, you know, that's the way I think, I think associatively. Now I know that when, when you're working on your song parodies, you are in, you are an intense deconstructionist and reconstructionist, right? I mean, yeah. you really are a perfectionist.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, people write it off like, oh, he's just doing this silly comedy, and, you know, <laughs> my, my, my four-year-old makes fun of the songs on the radio, and, you know, it's it's not quite what I do, because I, I spend no. a lot of time, I, I obsess over every single syllable, I want to make sure that it scans rhythmically. Um, when the New York Times did a piece on me, they, they kind of documented my process a bit, I mean, for every uh, verse that I write, I've got, like, 12 different variations, like, every line, uh, I, I try to see if I can express that thought slightly differently, wow. you know, change the words Around just a little bit, or use a different word, because there's there's a lot of different ways you can say something. But in my mind, there's only one way has to be the best. So I explore all possibilities, and and that way I'm more like I'm more like Edison than Tesla, because yeah. Tesla would just like go, okay, well this is the best idea obviously, and Edison would say, no, let's think of all 1,000 possible variations
2: <laughs> and then figure yeah, I, it out. I have employees I have to take care of, right? right? <laughs>
1: The art of the parody uh, is is much more than meets the eye or the ear. From what I read and and actually spoke to friends who are professional musicians, uh, a friend of mine, Marty Rifkin.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And I mentioned that we were going to talk. And the first thing he said was, it's all about music for Al
3: that's really nice to hear man uh, it's it's uh I, I feel bad for my band sometimes because uh, I don't feel like they get the respect they deserve but they've been playing with me for over 30 years and they play every genre imaginable and I I think they're you know in my uh, unbiased opinion I think they're you know the best band in the world uh, and they don't often get the respect because we do comedy music and some people, I mean, there, there's a part of their brain that thinks, oh, it's comedy. Therefore, it can't be as good or include as much craft as a quote unquote normal song. And, and that's just not true. I mean, you know, it, the only that's difference right. is the lyrics are humorous and everything else has to be just as good, if not better than the original. That's what Lin-Manuel Miranda said.
1: He calls himself a weird owl obsessive <laughs> and he credited you as an influence on H- Hamilton. That's
3: amazing, yeah. Yeah, he Is said that that he, something?
1: Yeah, he once lip synced Taco Grande uh, <laughs> in front of a sixth grade class and said that he preferred Weird Al songs to the originals because you're a perfectionist.
3: That's, I mean, Lynn has become a, a close friend of mine, and that's just so nice to hear because, uh, I mean, we just have so much mutual mutual admiration. But I mean, Lynn would talk about how he learned through me that that music uh, that genres are fluid. Uh, like listening to my polka medleys, he realized that you know just the uh, the, the way that a song is presented. Uh, you know is is malleable i mean you know just because a song is first perceived in a certain way it doesn't always need to be perceived that way it can be changed around and, and it can be fluid
2: that's right yeah. Yeah. that's right you know the the only time the Firesign theater did a completely musical album was called fighting clowns uh artwork by the late great phil hartman and uh, we called our we, we called ourselves the eight shoes Okay? And we went out to a thrift store and we found four matching Robin's Egg blue tuxedos, (laughs) right? <laughs> and we put on our patent leather shoes, and we performed. Uh, we we rehearsed and performed a whole bunch of songs with kind of skits in between to tie them together. Uh, and we performed it at the Roxy and recorded it live. And then uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter added some great you know riffs to it in the studio. And it was amazingly satisfying. Right now, did you have any influence from Firesign Theater? I know, in reading your book, the book of Al, I saw a lot of references to people that we should talk about, like Tom Lehrer and Spike Jones. But uh, I, I didn't read the whole thing, so I don't know if you, if you mentioned Firesign, which is unimportant. If, but, but you know, <laughs> what was your relationship? I I, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm sure. not. Sure. Make something up.
3: <laughs> I'm not sure if Firesign is mentioned in the book, but you guys absolutely influenced me. I've I've uh, I've stolen stuff from you guys. I mean, uh, everything you know is wrong is obviously a direct ripoff of Firesign Theater, which I oh, made that the title you. of one of my songs. It's a, they might be Giants pastiche, but that's completely yep. from you guys, obviously.
2: Oh, and uh, uh, let me let me just get my lawyer on the line. <laughs> <laughs> we we'll, <we'll> continue talking. <laughs> When you
1: do parodies, you know, people like to riff off of songs and they think it's just slapdash, just throw some funny words together and the music's already written, you're just reflecting it. But that's not how you work. I, I read that uh, you go into a deep trance state for quite an extended period <laughs> yeah. and you then you just whittle word by syllables into line by line and... This is a very meticulous process for you.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh maybe maybe when I first started out, when I was just like goofing on the Doctor Demento show, I would like whip out lyrics in a very short period of time. I think when I did another <laughs> one, "Rides the Bus," that was record that was written in like twenty minutes or something. That was just oh, I, I need something funny to do on the show this weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but after I started getting a little bit of uh, popularity and people started to actually care about my body of work, I realized, oh, I have to live with these songs for you know quite an extended period of time, so maybe I should put some thought and effort into this. So now, whenever I uh, write anything, it involves a lot of effort and I, I agonize over <laughs> every, every uh, semicolon that I <laughs> that I write. That's one of the many reasons you have so many Grammys. <laughs> And, and I thanked the Firesign Theater in, in my first Grammy speech.
2: Yes, well, that's right. Was that your first Grammy when you d- destroyed our chance? That was, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I remember we were, at the, we
3: were at the party the night before the Grammy party, and we made a pact. Like, if one of us won the Grammy, we had to thank the other person. So, that's right. So, so I won and I thanked you.
2: Well, if we had to lose to anybody, Aww. losing to you was, you know. And what were the two works? Oh, gosh. Mine
3: was Eat It in 80, that would have been 84, 85, so I, what was yours? I forget.
2: Was it uh, The the Three Faces of Al? Right. The first comedy CD? Was that the very first comedy CD ever? Yes. Yes, right. We, we uh, pioneered yes. that particular uh, expression. And you were going up against Eat It. <laughs> and we did <laughs> In fact, on, on the cover of, of uh, One of these magazines That was out there then, I don't know uh, Electronics in your ear or whatever it was They had a, a picture of us uh, at, at dinner, this is the, for the cover Eating CDs I know. Ooh. See, that just shuts you right up. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you just remind me that so many brilliant uh, photographers that year uh, had photo setups
2: with me eating things. So, yeah, that was
3: <laughs>
1: one of many, I'm sure.
2: Well, I want to tell you one thing, because uh, you are talking about how agonizing the process of writing can be, and then how satisfying uh, it is when, you you know, you, you, you've you got it, and it's, and, it's, and it's accepted and loved. Uh, Firesign Theater, four guys writing together I could say exactly the same thing okay uh, my zombie state would be I would I we we're working on some album or something I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up in the middle of the night or sometimes if I don't know if that happens to you and there'd be the line that I wanted or the idea that I wanted and I'd write it down in the dark and then in the morning I'd look up and it'd say <laughs> and I go great I'll bring it into the guys they'll love it and, and we used to agonize horribly over, over various ideas and, and words and all kinds of stuff and then we'd go into the studio and we'd start improvising and sometimes we'd just throw the scripts away because that was like a blueprint for something that we were going to build on the spot and we'd come up with some great stuff Wow. I, I, mm. I had the same experience. Whenever I write, I always
3: keep a, a, a pen uh, and paper by the, by the nightstand by my bed because, you know, most of my ideas come to me in the middle of the night when I'm half asleep mm. and I'll, I'll wake up and I'll have a great idea. I'll write a bargle Noddle's house or whatever on the paper because I, I, I've learned that if I just think, oh, this is great, this is brilliant, I'll remember it in the morning. That is never no, the case. No, never. It's
2: never the case. No. It's <laughs> terrible. It's terrible.
1: We put together sort of a chronological outline, preparing for this conversation what a fascinating background you have even in the early days your mother served you a bowl of sauerkraut every morning for breakfast
3: Th- that's uh that's lyrics on one of my songs and i have to i have to warn you not all of my songs
2: were completely autobiographical i'm so glad to hear that well <laughs> I- i'm not because i'm of amish ancestry and you know i loved your amish paradise parody but uh i i just finished uh uh pork shops and sauerkraut with apples and onions Ooh. which i made Okay, sauerkraut is like a staple of the of our Amish uh, uh, diet.
3: Now I'm really glad we're
1: socially distanced.
2: (laughs) I actually ate a lot of sauerkraut
3: growing up. So uh, I I think I think uh, my distaste for sauerkraut is the one lie that I told in that song. Everything else is true. And you're a vegetarian still. I am a vegan. I lost my uh, card-carrying vegan status because I, I do cheat on, uh, on cheese every, every now and then. Cheese on ice cream every now and then. So I'm, I'm leaning vegan, but...
2: Oh, cheese on ice cream. Parmesan and Rocky Road? Oh, my favorite! Yep. Yeah. Oh, God. Even Rocky Road. Rocky Road's
3: a double threat because uh, the marshmallow in Rocky Road is usually made with gelatin, so that would not be vegetarian. How long have you been a vegan vegetarian? Uh, since about 92. Great. What made you do that? Uh, I I read a book called Diet for a New America uh, that was given to me by a friend, and it it made a pretty compelling case. Uh, And I just uh, thought, yeah, okay, let's do this. And I haven't looked back.
2: I, I remember that book was printed on soy paper, and you could eat it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, here at, we go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Al. You, I, you know, you were kind enough to invite my wife Melinda and I to see your show. I think down at Orange County at the county fair uh-huh. years ago. And I was absolutely blown away at the energy that you had on that stage. Also, the band. Oh, my God. The power of that band. And your costume changes and your video inserts and everything. I mean, I was humbled (laughs) to see what
1: you did. Well, thank you. In the New York Times article you mentioned, obviously written by a fan, who happened to be a great writer, too. Wonderful. He opened the article about his experience of uh, watching your show in Forest Hills in New York. And he was so taken by not only the enthusiasm of your fans and and your base, but you have a huge fan base and the dedication to them. And what he was struck by was the inclusiveness and what you do and what it really means to your fans. What is your view of the relationship you have to your fevered fans?
3: I, I definitely have that feeling whenever I walk out on a stage. It's, it's like, it, you know, they're part of my extended family. I mean, a lot of the, the people that come to see me uh, uh, in concert, they've been coming to shows for decades now, and now they're bringing their kids. And it, it really does, you know, feel like they're my friends. So, you know, at the end of the night, I want to say I love you all. I mean, that's sincere. I mean, I, I definitely have, feel like I have a bond with these people. And you come out after the show and spend a lot of time with them. As much as I can. Yeah, I mean, some, sometimes I spend more time after the show, uh, you know, hanging out and signing autographs and taking pictures than the actual show, you know. It's, but, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great for me and it's great for them. And I, I like to, uh, you know, hang out. I, I hope that someday in the future we can do that again.
2: Yeah, for sure. You used to memorize certain, you know, funny songs and things that you heard. I did the same with Tom Lehrer. Okay, and and I really think that's one of the reasons why uh, Firesign fans and your fans are are so feel like they're part of us, you know, part of our family. And uh, and in in fact, when we used to change any lines in our in our live shows from some of our records, they would be very upset. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so it's a little yeah.
2: daunting
3: sometimes because people know the material so well I'm always afraid of the comments uh, online afterwards like I'll change this one syllable of yeah, the there song. You
2: go. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> That's not the way it is on the single. You know?
3: <laughs> you know, I wrote the song as my prerogative to change it at a moment's notice if I feel like it, okay? Here, here, right,
1: <laughs> right. What do you think it is that people are so uh, connected to you?
3: It's hard to say. I mean, part of it's just, you know, the sheer longevity and t- tenacity. And I've just been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, and I think humor, I think humor really resonates with people uh, in a stronger way than maybe even they realize. I mean, to make somebody feel good or to cheer somebody up or to make them laugh, that's a powerful thing. If somebody's like not having a good day or trying to get over some, you know, traumatic thing in their life and, and my music helps them snap out of it. I mean, that that has an effect and people don't forget that. Uh, Someone described you as a
1: sober, clean living, fiscally responsible, extraordinarily well-preserved, consummate mensch with a pristine (laughs) reputation.
3: (laughs) And I think that really just boils down to you're just a really nice person. Oh, well, I I, I like that reputation, but it always confuses me a little bit because most of my friends are nice. I mean, I don't know a lot of jerks in the business. I'm sure that there are. But I mean. You guys are nice. I mean, but <laughs> why do I get the reputation? I I like it. I'm not going to say anything against that. But uh, but uh, yeah, I I, I like being <laughs> I like being known as nice. Why not?
1: People have said that you are the nicest person they've ever met wow. or worked with.
3: They should get out more.
1: I wrote it in a set or situation where you're you're given some lines and there's a curse word in it. Uh, you'll just politely, of course.
3: You're Tell them uh, to screw off. <laughs> <laughs> You're adverse to using profanity? Yeah. Yeah, I, I just never have. That's, you know, that was sort of the way I was raised and how I grew up. And I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. And I, I just don't want to be a bad role model to kids, you know, because I, I didn't set out to be a role model or to, to have this kind of image or brand, but... That's kind of the way it turned out. And I know a lot of kids listen to my music and I just don't want to do anything uh, that would, you know, not be appropriate or expose them to things that they don't want to hear, hear, see or
2: hear. And that's wonderful. The, the other thing that people have recognized about what you do is that you're respectful of the sources that you parody. Yeah. And you don't have to, but you ask permission.
3: Yeah, the the phrase that I always use is, is "gray area" because legally, it's not that I could get away with anything I want to do. But the the courts rule in my favor. You know, uh, historically, you know, parody artists have been able to do what they do uh, without criminal, uh, without any kind of legal action. But I that's not the way that I've done business because I respect artists and I, I want to make sure that they're okay with what I do uh, I, I don't want to step on toes I don't want to break burn any bridges I just want to make sure that everybody's on board with the parody and, and and if they're not I'll back
2: away I don't don't have a problem doing that mm mm-hmm. uh, the Lady Gaga parody that you did and you know what you had to go through really before you learned that her that her gang her company hadn't even talked to her right. for her permission right it's so often getting through the bureaucracy of the business is is so much like that that, that that's why i always
3: try to uh, try to uh, talk directly to the artist if at all possible because the people between me and the artist usually mess it up you know the lady gaga thing was really a, a torturous experience because uh, her manager at the time made me jump through so many hoops and ultimately just said nah (laughs) she doesn't want you to do it and then I after the fact I found out that she hadn't even been told about it and she was fine with it and she was honored but I mean you know it that's that that's the toughest part is like trying to do the right thing and then all these people just kind of like stand in your way
2: it was so suitable for her too because you're one of the other things that you do that that uh, we have in common is your sense of the surreal Okay? And also your sartorial sense, (laughs) right? Your costumes and everything. How did you assemble this team? I'm sure it took a while to do it, but how did you assemble this extraordinary technical theatrical team of such excellence?
3: In in terms of uh, doing the music videos, or what are you referring to?
2: Yeah, well, everything. The music videos are extremely well produced. You know, I love the fact that you recreated the Buster Keaton gang. Oh, thank you in the Amish Paradise. <laughs> oh
3: man. Well, I let me since you brought that up, let me let me just tell you that was uh, one of the scariest moments of my life because uh, we had one take on that. And uh, it was—it was that was not any CGI or special effect or green screen. That was me in the middle of a field with a full, you know, house frame falling down around me, barely missing my head. And on top of that, uh, I was told that you know the the uh, the wood might torque a little bit, so they reinforced the wood with steel beams, Whoa. so that so that it would like land properly. But uh, it also meant that if it hit me. I would be dead instantly. So, oh, so, so when you so, uh, see me in the video, I'm there thinking, okay, we have one take. Try not to look like you're scared out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> and if you survive,
2: it'll be a funny shot. <laughs> it sure was, but it's a good thing to know that you at least you would have been killed instantly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that was comforting. No pain, no pain involved. No, that's <laughs> right. But anyway, yeah, yeah, in your show, the show that I saw, which I'm sure is typical of, of most of your uh, wonderful theatrical presentations, all the costuming and everything was just perfect. What I guess what I'm trying to ask is how much control do you have over that, and and how did you find? Did you find some people that you could trust that would help you realize your vision?
3: Uh, I, I'm pretty much in charge creatively of, of my live show. I uh, I put together the set list. I de- determine like uh, what the costume is going to be. Uh, I'm actually editing all of the video that you see on the screen myself on my computer. Oh, that's, really? that's all me so it's it's you know but obviously I'm not the person sewing the costumes together so I you know hire the appropriate people to actually build the wardrobe Uh, the the fat mask that I wear on stage was actually created by Kevin Yeager who's one of the top special effects guys in the business and he did the original fat costume back in 88 Uh, but I I try to work with very talented people and uh, you know from my band on up and uh, and that it it makes me look good
2: you know one of the things that I enjoyed so much in your show was the uh, the, it's the eat it number right where you wear the fat suit yeah and you jump up in the air and come down on the stage and everybody in the auditorium would was lifted off their seats <laughs> by the, <laughs> right by the force of your landing and i just loved that it was like hell's a poppet. molson and johnson they did immersive theater where where things would happen in the audience uh, as part of the show, you know, people would pop up in the audience. It's actually the first time I was ever on the stage, now that I, I think of it. In New York City, at a performance of Hell's a Poppin', uh, I was called up to do a hula hula dance. And I remember looking off to the side of the stage and seeing a big, fat stagehand with a smoking a cigar standing off stage. And I went, this is show business! <laughs> <laughs> I want to do this! <laughs> Pretty girls and fat guys with cigars. Let's go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh,
3: so that was your epiphany. That was your that was your moment. In your childhood, you had a
1: um, fat guy with a cigar. I, yeah, I did. But <laughs> A door-to-door salesman came and with musical instruments. And you had a choice between a guitar and an accordion at age seven. Is this a true story? It,
3: it is. Yeah, I, th- I think. Uh, yeah, I think I was maybe six at the time because my first. I remember my first accordion lesson was, was the day before my seventh birthday. And uh, this is yeah, it sounds like a joke, but uh, but at the time when they were door to door salesmen, you know, imagine that today. Uh, But at the time, somebody came around our neighborhood and knocked on our door and uh, they're from a from a music school. And uh, they uh, they, uh, asked my parents if their young child would like to take accordion lessons or guitar lessons. And uh, my parents and their infinite wisdom decided that I would be much more popular <laughs> in high school if I took accordion lessons because who oh wouldn't want an accordion player at their party? You're a one-man band You're yeah, the life of right. any party. This is during the era of the Beatles and the 60s rock and roll scene, right? I think this is about the time that Revolver came out, so the accordion was just really coming into its own. <laughs> now, were your folks musical at all? Uh, not really. My, uh, my mom, not to my, no, not really. My dad huh. thought he was musical. He he picked up a, a uh, an old guitar for $10 at a, a garage sale and he would strum it tunelessly and sing at the top of his lungs. So I don't know if you'd call that musical or not, but maybe that's where I got some of my shamelessness. <laughs> yeah, right. He was
1: a World War II hero, a double Purple Heart awardee. Yes, indeed. Fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. So did my dad as well. Nice. But your dad was also a bit of a goofball. He, did he give you your irreverent sense of humor?
3: I, I think so. Uh, I, I think I'm a little bipolar that way because my mom was very reserved and my dad was very gregarious and outgoing and huh. kind of a goof. So I've, I've definitely got a little bit of both of that in my personality. I, I kind of you know, change depending on the situation. But yeah, I, I, I kind of have both extremes for my parents.
1: Your mother sheltered you. Mary was her name. She really sheltered you and protected you. And, and as a result, if I read correctly, you didn't have much of a, a free social life when you were young. You... Much of? You didn't have any, according to the stuff <laughs> Well, I read. according to the book. The Book of Al, right. Okay, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that, because it, it seems like when you finally did break away from that, you really broke away
3: from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go wild or anything, but I... Um... I I did enjoy uh, my my freedom at the time. I I, I started school early. I I started uh, high school when I was 12 years old and graduated uh, when I was 16. Valedictorian. Yeah, up, up until like my senior year, it was a very protective kind of uh, upbringing. My my folks wouldn't let me visit my friends at their house. If somebody wanted to play with me, they had to come into my house. So my mom could keep an eye on them. Uh, she famously would watch me through binoculars out the kitchen window because my, my high school was right across the street from our house. Oh, um, no kidding. It was, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's a little, yeah, it's a little much. And I, I remember when I was 15 years old and they had just denied me to do something I really wanted to do. Uh, I remember <laughs> saying very, very passive aggressively, it's okay, mom. Next year I'll be in college and I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was kind of a wake up call. It's like, oh, um, maybe we better oh. loosen the strings a little bit and let, <laughs> let Al get used to his freedom.
1: I just wonder, you know, with the binoculars, did you get some flack from your your peers at that point? Oh,
3: I did, but I was a nerd anyway, so you you hardly noticed it, you know. (laughs) I just got the
2: normal abuse. Uh, You got the the moniker Weird Al because of of your nerdiness, really, right, in college. Right. You know, I I wasn't trying to be weird, but people thought I was...
3: uh, Sort of unusual and uh yeah and i, I got that nickname and it, it wasn't a, an affectionate nickname i don't think <laughs> I was, oh there goes weird al you know and i, I yeah. just kind of took it on professionally because i just wanted to own that i wanted to like say all right fine i'm weird let's let's run
2: with this yeah i think we're all bozos on this yeah bus. You, you know that's one of the things that, that you you talked about earlier when you talk about the audience one of the things that that uh, our audiences l- uh, love about us is that they I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, and maybe you have too. You saved my life. I thought I was the only crazy person. I thought I was crazy until I met some other people who also liked the Firesign Theater and had memorized, you know, a side of their album. And I realized that I'm not crazy, and there are other people who think creatively like I do. Have you had people t- uh, talk to you like that? Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, people talk all the time about how when they go to a Weird Al concert, it's sort of like... They're finding friends that they never knew they had. They, 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 they belong to something like, oh, there are other people that enjoy this and think this way, and I'm not alone.
1: That's right. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest, Weird Al Yankovic. We'll be right back.
3: Like the way you
1: Hello,
0: dear friends. This is Eric Burton. Yes, they did take away our music. But now you can have it back on these three wonderful voice prints of the 60s. All your magic memories of flying over the music capitals of the world will come rushing back with the first twang of a lead guitar. Now listen to all the monsters of the 60s at once. The Rolling Who, Derek and the Taylors, Clive Beadle, Bing Crosby Stills and Ogden Nash. Songs like I've Got My Hand on Your Mouse, Helicopter 59, Tight Shoes, I'll Be Gumping You and Hundreds of Others. Goodness, gracious, great God Almighty. It's like having now right in your living room. So don't wait till the midnight hour. Send 15 seconds in code or credit to Rock and Roll Memory Bank, Hong Kong, New York, York. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows and get your hands on our Sexy Boomer bumper sticker, visit SexyBoomerShow.com. Look for Sexy Boomer Show on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Weird Al Yankovic. Al, there's a parallel to someone
1: else who also was teasingly nicknamed Weird and later became very well-known and successful. Mm -hmm. My first job in radio was the last freeform rock and roll station in the New York area, and we were there about a year, and a new hire came in. His name was Howard Stern. (laughs) And he was still very much a straight DJ. And we were, this was KRP on acid. I mean, this was a wild Uh rock and roll, unsupervised radio station. And Howard comes in. In private parts, he very faithfully recreates exactly what he looked like Uh and how he behaved, which was, this is Howard Stern with you from 10 till 2 today. That was Howard. Yeah. And hey, what about that new guy? Well, he's really nice, but he's, he's really kind of weird, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he's kind of weird. So everybody had a nickname, and he was given the name How Weird. <laughs> and and he hated it at first. And he literally came in at one point and said to me, why does everybody call me How, How Weird? weird. <laughs> and I used to kid back with him. I said, because you're weird, Howard. He goes, ah, and he'd walk out of the room. <laughs> and he was uncomfortable with it at first, and then he did embrace it as well for a while in his early ah. career. He went by the name How Weird, oh. and then he eventually dropped it. But Howard was always oh. very nice. He was, he was completely different from what his eventual persona was.
2: Yeah, but embracing your weirdness, embracing your uh, differentness, your uniqueness, I think that's one of the messages that, that we send uh, as, as co- comics to the world, you know? You, you're, and also, you're not alone. All those things are very positive. I've gotten
3: so many wonderful letters from people that are saying, you know, they felt different. They felt like an outcast or an outsider and listening to my music made them realize it gets better. You can, (laughs) it's okay to be different. And and by the way, I should point out that Howard Stern, oddly enough, looked very much like what I did at the time as well. I had the glasses and the aviator frames and the, the poodle do.
1: The mustache.
3: Yeah he
1: wasn't a weird person he was actually a very kind person focused he did tm in his car before he came up and did his show every day i think looking back at it maybe it was weird because he wasn't he didn't know who he was yet
2: right but you know in your case uh al when did you come out when did you say hey you know i like writing song parodies or i like making music or i like being oh yeah you were a class clown weren't you
3: I don't know how many people really thought of me as a class clown. I was a, like the high school valedictorian. I was more of a more of, more of the straight A student, prototypical nerd. You know, my, my close friends probably enjoyed my humor, but I, I think other than the people that uh, were exposed to me through the Dr. Demento show, I don't think a lot of people in high school thought of me quite that way. But yeah, Dr. Demento was really how I, you know, really kind of came into my own. That was your coming out? Yeah. When did you start sending him material? Oh gosh, I think my first when I was like 13, I think I sent him my, my first tape, and I don't think he even I don't think he even kept that. I think that wound up in the trash. Wow! I think there were a couple before this that he played, but the first thing that caught any attention at all was my Bologna, which wound up being eventually released, you know, on on um on Capitol Records.
1: Now, how did it turn out that you ended up working at Westwood
3: One? Well, uh, Westwood One is the company that syndicated the Dr. Demento show, so I kind of had a foot in the door. So when I graduated from college with a degree in architecture that I knew I was never going to use, I thought, <laughs> well, maybe I'll you know take a you know minimum wage job in the mailroom at this place, and at least I can be on the fringes of you know rock and and Dr. Demento, and have, at least be around the people that I, I'm trying to emulate. So and it, it was nice. I mean, I was doing grunt labor and getting people's lunch and taking out the mail, but at the same time, I would bump into. Frank Frank Zappa, I would bump into like whoever was like being interviewed that day, so it was actually a pretty cool, cool gig.
1: The moment that sort of happened for you was at Cal Poly, uh, where you were using the bathroom because of the acoustics when you were doing the Knacks and My Sharona, and there's a plaque in the bathroom <laughs> saying this is the birthplace of Weird Al.
3: That, that's pretty amazing. I think the plaque just went up a couple of years ago, but it's it's pretty. Uh, uh... Mind-blowing! <laughs> they, they called that bathroom Studio 229 because it was directly across the hall from the old campus radio station. And whenever oh. somebody wanted to sound like they were doing a, a remote, they would run lines from the from the production room into the bathroom because it had this nice reverb sound. It oh, sounded sure, very <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. It's a very it's a very nice sound. And then we thought, oh well, well, we'll just record in there. So that was uh, yeah, that was the place. We just set up the mic next to a urinal, and I I rocked it out. When you first got started, you wanted to find a producer for your record,
1: and you met up with an old hero of mine, Rick Derringer. Yeah. I was a big Johnny Winter, Edgar Winter fan. And Rick Derringer was always there with them. Now, he was just starting out as a producer, right? So this was early on.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what he'd done producer-wise. I mean, he was a rock god, uh, obviously. Uh, but this would, would have been like 1982 that I got involved with Rick. Uh, and the, the, the way that happened was his manager uh, at the time, Jake Hooker, was part of the Arrows, which was the band that originally recorded the song I Love Rock and Roll, which Joan Jett covered. And when I, when I was trying to get permission to do my parody, I Love Rocky Road, uh, we had to go through Jay Cooker. And he said, not only will I let you do this, but you, know, you need a producer to, you know, for your album, and I, I represent you know, Rick Derringer, and would you be interested in that? And I was like, yes. And, and Rick oh. was into it, and that was the beginning. Rick pr- produced uh, my first six albums, my entire output during the 80s. Wow. What was it like working with him? Amazing Rick was so great and and uh I mean just a guitar legend uh he uh well you know Eddie van Halen just passed away and and Rick totally uh copied his guitar solo uh for the for the uh eat it video because because Eddie did it on beat it and i I have such a strong memory of him recording that solo because I mean the solos i don't know ten seconds long or something, but in the studio he he played the solo like 10 seconds long and after it he was literally drenched with sweat <laughs> he was like he <laughs> put so much into that it just it was just palpable it was just amazing to watch
2: but yeah just a great guy too can i ask you al what were some of your uh, early uh, influences i know uh, elton john and uh, the yellow brick road was something that kind of got you into the rock and roll era, but when you were a kid growing up, did you listen to Spike Jones? Did you uh, listen to comedy records in general?
3: Yeah, I, I, again, through the Dr. Demento show, I mean, you know, obviously Fire Sign, but I mean, the, my, my Mount, Mount Rushmore of influences that I always credit are Spike Jones, Stan Freeberg, Alan Sherman, and Tom Lair. Those are probably the main four, but I mean, you know, on top of that, uh, obviously, uh, you know, Shel Silverstein and uh, SVTV and Zappa, and, and yeah, yeah. the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I, I draw from a lot of influences.
2: And did you know that, uh, Tom, Tom Lehrer invented the uh, jello shot. I think I'd heard that before. He d- did that like back at Harvard, I guess. Yeah, well, at his school, wherever he was teaching, because uh, he couldn't have a bottled whiskey in his office. So he he would make jello shots and put them in his refrigerator. I love that.
1: Interesting. A-, a record that had a major influence on me was uh, George, Car- all of George Carlin's. Oh, were, George Carlin. George Carlin's AMFM really was a, yeah. a breakthrough
3: album. And you, yeah. you literally. Transcribe the album on a manual typewriter. Yeah, and th- that was one of those albums because of my uh, protective uh, upbringing. I'm, I'm surprised that my parents allowed me to buy that album in the first place. But when I listened to it, I had to listen with my ear right up against the speaker because I didn't want them to hear the dirty words. Right.
2: <laughs> Here, I'm going to sing something to you. You tell me if you remember hearing it. <clears throat> When the Führer says we is the master race, we heil, heil, <laughs> right in the Führer's face. Not to love the Führer is a great disgrace, so we heil, 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 right in the Führer's face. I love Spike Jones, but why does he have to get so political? Come on! <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, they, I think they used it uh, also in a Disney cartoon called Nutsy Land. Oh, yes. Yeah, where all the Germans were squirrels. I think Donald Duck was prepared for war, and oh, my God.
1: Go into this list of your hits, uh, Eat It, Huey Lewis' is, uh, I Want a New Drug to I Want a New Duck. She drives me crazy. She drives like crazy, addicted to love, addicted to spuds. I think we're alone now. I think I'm a clone now. Zoot suit riot into grapefruit diet. And girls just want to have fun into girls just want to have lunch. lunch. These are not political songs, are they? (laughs) No.
3: (laughs) No, in general, I actually try to stay away from politics just for, for two main reasons. One is that it ages very poorly. Uh, you know, especially these days. I mean, the news cycle's like five minutes long. Uh, but, you know, even back in the before times, uh, you know, uh, political humor doesn't have much of a shelf life. So that's one big reason. And the other reason, especially these days, is it's so polarizing. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not anxious to lose half my fan base or have uh, hordes of people trying to actually kill me. <laughs> so, yeah, right, so I, I, right, I tend right. to stay away from <laughs> politics in general unless I can do it in a way that I think is very nonpartisan.
1: That's a credit to you that you've been able to have such a successful career by and not getting political. That's right. And keeping it G-rated and clean. I'm thrilled because for once we can put out a podcast that doesn't have the explicit warning on it. <laughs>
2: Everybody always drops
1: the F-bomb eventually. That's a credit to you in this cynical day and age. And it's, it's wonderful. Well, thanks.
2: One of the things that I, that I admire much, so much about your career is that you have, uh, how can I say, it, exploited in a very creative way the various kinds of media platforms that have been evolving over the 30 years that you've been doing this work.
3: Yeah, from being a godsend to the early MTV.
2: MTV, that's right. That's admirable.
3: Well, thank you. Uh, I'm not going to swear that I'm never going to put out another album, but I'd say it's highly, highly unlikely. Uh, I just don't feel like, I mean, which is ironic because my last album did extremely well, but I mean, I I feel like it's better for me to just be more responsive to uh, contemporary zeitgeist to just do stuff when it feels appropriate and, and get, get stuff out there when they, I feel it should be out there. and Because and, in the old model, I would have to wait until I had 12 songs and then put them out all at once. And some of them would be timely and some of them, oh, this would have been better if it came out two years ago, you know? When my contract ran out after 32 years, my, my, label, my label was very anxious to, to sign me up for another period of time. And I just... I just didn't want to do that because I didn't want to feel encumbered. I I like the feeling of not owing something to somebody. And also, I just, you know, if you're not under contract, you don't have to get permission from from people because I've, I've in this year since... uh mandatory fun. I've done a, a number of projects where under you know, the old circumstances, I would have had to like officially contact my label. Is it okay if I work with this person? Is it okay if they release this? And sometimes and they'd have to make a deal and it would, it got very messy. And I, I like the idea of be, me being my own person and just doing literally anything I feel like and putting it out whenever I feel like and I'd have to wait in, in a way that would, would be better for the record label.
1: Things are so unsettled in all business channels and distribution, and to be in a position where you feel comforted and sort of more secure by letting go of the past and embracing sort of this wild frontier of media now uh, where pretty much anything goes. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on Doomed. I saw it for the first time on the New York Times op-ed page, which really threw me. <laughs> and I was like, wait, wait a minute, what's Weird Al doing on, in the New York Times? <laughs> I checked back a couple of days ago uh, on the YouTube channel, and you had uh, two and a half million views, and that's extraordinary. You are able to sort of hover above all the turmoil, aren't you?
3: A bit, and and I, I have to uh, first of all just uh, make it clear that uh, uh, that was the Gregory brothers. I mean, it was their idea, it's it's their concept. They do these uh-huh. debate videos every time there's a major election, and they were nice enough to invite me back. I, I did one four years ago, actually, with uh, the the debate, the third debate between uh, uh, Trump and, and Clinton, and uh, and this was fun to do. And and uh, I actually recorded. I, I hate to give away the magic of it, but I actually recorded my part two or three days before the actual debate because we knew what the topics were going to be. We had a pretty good idea that it was just going to be a a train wreck. (laughs) And uh, so so I recorded my questions, again, nonpartisan, and then uh, the actual night of the debate, uh, that was all the Gregory brothers staying up all night long and editing all those uh, clips together. So uh, uh, they were really in charge of the content there.
1: You are the master of the trade. I mean, you don't do political, and yet you just got well over two million downloads of parodying a political debate. Yeah. What is the distinction there? Where did you not cross the political line? Well,
3: you know, uh, a lot of people have said that that uh, piece is slanted, uh, and I... I don't think it is, but whether it is or not, that wasn't me doing the slanting. I, I, my, I thought my questions were very nonpartisan. They were very open-ended questions. In fact, uh, you know, if you see me in, in, the, in the video, you see me uh, going, well, and hmm, and oh. And, so, and all those reactions <laughs> were also recorded ahead of the debate. I didn't know what I was going to be reacting to. <laughs> they just said, oh, give us like 20 or so different like random reactions. And I did, hmm, oh, well, so. And then, <laughs> and then they <laughs> really? edited it after the fact. So I didn't know at the time what I was even re- responding to.
1: Having seen so many of your videos over the decades, uh, watching this one, there's nothing like being in the moment and turning that around within 24 hours of the debate. It was so powerfully relevant, uh, and it really put a spotlight on you again and how good a singer you are.
3: Oh, thank you. What kind of amazes me is I recorded that at home downstairs on the same microphone and the same setup that I'm using at this very second. So wow. that, that you know that uh, wasn't recorded in like a fancy recording studio. That was just me at home with like this with my laptop, and uh, it made me realize. Well, why am I spending thousands of dollars in the
2: studio? I <laughs> Just do this at home. When we, you and I, when we started uh, working in the recording industry, those records were like to me unidentified flying objects. They were big disks, at least when we started, and, and they would be flung out into the audience, into the world, and people. some people would see them and say, oh, hey, that's, that's really great, I'd like to, to listen to that, and others would ignore it, but that's what's happening now. You see, it's all private. People were listening when we made our records in the privacy of their own homes. Okay, we knew that our stuff would not. A uh, uh, twenty-minute piece wasn't going to be played on the radio, right? I played it on the radio. And in fact, when I, when, I was, when I was a DJ in college, I, I uh, when I wor-
3: worked at uh, my first commercial radio station, which was KZoZ in San Luis Obispo, I was like the overnight guy. And you could you could always tell when the when the overnight guy had to go to the bathroom. It was like they put on a whole side <laughs> right? of fire sign theater.
2: <laughs> what Bergman used to do on radio for Oz on KPFK was to put on a raga. You know, and uh-huh. we go out and get stoned in the parking lot. You know, <laughs> pee in the bushes and come back. You know, right. but yes, it's true. But 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 that's what's happening now. You put something out there. It's private, and people you know can absorb it in at their own time, in their own privacy of their own uh, dungeons and and bunkers, right. and you know, and then you have a, a
1: success. And speaking of bunkers, the last few months of our show, Bunker to Bunker, because uh, we're in bunkers, we're all isolated, and we always ask our guests, you know, how are you, how are you coping with this extraordinary situation? Another parallel: We both had a kid in 2003, so we both started late in life, which I—it turned out to be a gift for me. I just because I was just much more present. Oh, for,
3: for, totally. I mean, I, I, I'm glad that I, you know, uh, I, I had a, a, a child at this point in my life because I feel like I can, you know, appreciate it more now and and focus more of my attention on raising my kid, and it it just it all worked out very well. Is she in uh, 12th grade? Yeah, she's a senior. She's in her senior year. She's she's I mean, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the p- pandemic uh, as well as I possibly can be. I mean, I uh, I, I wish, you know, we lived in a, a normal world right now, of course. But, you know, I'm, I'm OK staying at home all the time. Uh, I, I don't mind it quite as much. But I mean, my daughter is, you know, a senior in high school and she wishes, obviously, that she had more of a real life. And she was like, you know. You know, th- this year we're we're going to be traveling all around all around the country looking at potential colleges. She has a lot of friends that she wants to be hanging out with, so it's it's a bummer for for
1: her most of all. Our daughter is her whole social life is circled on music. and senior year, she's section leader of her marching band, which is her pride and joy. and you know marching band right now <laughs> remotely. not quite the same thing. I just feel so bad for her because she's not going to get it back. I just hope that our girls get a chance to have a semi-normal uh, first year in college at this point. I know, I know.
2: My darling daughter is 45 years old now, but my grandkids, uh, nine and 12, little girl, little boy, uh, they're being homeschooled by my daughter, and it's just... Driving her nuts. Driving her crap, Absolutely crazy. <laughs> crazy.
1: I think we're lucky that our, our kids are seniors in high school. At least they're getting a, a year of independent study ahead of time right we set up a desk in her bedroom we said honey this is like your first year of college in a dorm room <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know this is it this is it's it good you'll, practice. Be, you'll
2: be so ready now yeah oh man yeah. i have a question for you al are you uh, aware of uh, other parodists who and uh, satirists who exist today like randy rainbow Oh, obviously, yeah. I mean, Randy's a genius. I think he's great.
3: I agree. I'm glad that Randy exists because, I mean, I, I there's been a bit of a vacuum because I've kind of dropped out a little bit in terms of my, uh, uh, you know, uh, putting out material because partly because, you know, the world has been so you know what it is <laughs> for the last few years that it is it's, it's kind of hard f- you know if i if i put out something frivolous or non-related to that it just kind of feels like i'm not reading the room so i'm glad there's somebody to to pick up the slack since i'm not doing political humor to actually address what's going on Al, you have a new song. Tell us about it. Well, it's not my song, per se. It's uh, Portugal the Man uh, put out a single recently. uh, And uh, Portugal the Man is one of my favorite groups. They're old friends of mine. I've I've performed with them at Bonnaroo. I actually uh, did a a couple remixes of their singles. They've been fans of mine for a long time so they asked me to like do a remix of uh feel feel it still and live in the moment and they wanted me to do my my polka (laughs) remixes (laughs) so i did those so we've we've kind of had this long-standing relationship going um and uh in in fact in fact they they played the tonight show and on their drum head they uh printed a picture of my face with the caption weird al yankovic made us what we are today So they've been very sweet and very supportive. And they they asked me to be um, featured on their latest single. So I'm actually singing on this single uh, called Who's Gonna Stop Me. And it, it came out on Indigenous People's Day. And it, it supports Indigenous people's rights. And it's, it's a nice departure for me because it's not novelty. It's not funny at all. You know, they just have me singing seriously on it. Uh, I, I sing the second verse. I sing throughout the whole song. Uh, I'm in the video, so it's, it's nice to be included in that. It's just, I, I don't know how people, <laughs> some people might be raising an eyebrow about me appearing in a song like that or a video like that, but uh, you know that's, that's one of the nice things uh, where I am right now. I can, I can do anything I feel like, and that, <laughs> that was something that I was very excited about doing. This is important,
1: we want this song to hit because you have had a song in the top 40 every decade for the last four decades. And that's, you're in rare company. Astounding. But if this record hits,
3: this will make it a fifth decade. And does that make you? Uh... I, would be the, I would be the only one. If, if, this, if this record hits top 40, that would be the only person to have a top 40 hit single in the last five decades. Oh, yeah. Let's, wow. Let's make it happen, folks. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Go download now. With four decades, it was myself, Michael Jackson, Madonna, U uh, two, and and uh, Kenny G. So all of my close personal friends. Yeah. So you're in this small group of greats
1: uh, for four decades. Uh, record now, if you hit with this record or some other record in the next couple of years, you're going to be all by yourself as the top, the king.
3: It's lonely at the top. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> Has this situation, the pandemic, and all. Uh, has it sparked ideas for you uh, as far as what you want to do next?
3: Not really. I mean, I uh, I want to keep doing music, but most of my attention these days has been uh, toward other projects. I've got I wrote a, a, a screenplay last year, which we're in the middle of trying to get financed. Uh, I'm in the middle of pitching a TV show. Uh, there's a children's show which which I'd been pitching for a few years, which I think that's probably dead at this point. But I mean, there's there's all these projects that uh, unfortunately I can't get go into specifics uh, or talk about them right now. But I've I've been it's not like I haven't been doing anything. I've been I've been trying to get all these other things off the ground and and try to uh, do things that I haven't really uh, had the option or possibility of doing before.
2: Now you also wrote some children's books, didn't you? I?
3: Did and actually, the <laughs> what I was just talking about was supposed to be like the TV version of that. So based on those books, oh, but yeah, good, I, good, I, good. I recorded. Oh. I did a, a couple of books for Harper uh, of years ago, uh, 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 "When I Grow Up" and "My New Teacher and Me." So that that was a lot of fun. Um, I haven't written a children's book in, in a while, and uh, maybe I'll get back to that. Uh, Al,
2: you could write one. Of my virtual teacher and me.
3: There you go. <laughs> Depending on how long this goes on, we might have to, like, have some, you know, Zoom-related uh, children's books coming out. Well, thank you so much
1: for uh, taking time during the pandemic. I've got nothing but time <laughs> during the pandemic.
2: <laughs> yeah, if you get lonely, we'll call you again.
3: <laughs> oh, sounds good. Well, this is a pleasure, guys. Thank you
2: so much. Take Love care. You, Al. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: He's just the best.
2: It yeah. speaks to his the strength of his spirit and his consciousness and his conscience well it's good to see
1: you we'll uh, be back with our next episode of Phil and Ted's sexy boomer show thank you for joining us and don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your player what is that
2: wait let me just look here. yeah just right is you that... just hit that, that... oh subscribe this thing here button. yeah wait a minute I just what? ordered 200 tins of lizard meat mm. oh no well it's always good to have
0: that in the bunker so long Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and special guest Weird Al Yankovic. Rock and Roll Memory Bank was written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Batos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm A. Ernest Guy. Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show produced by RadioPictures.com the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay.